Thank you, Leslie and Paul. And good morning to the rest of you. Let's take our Bible and uh, Bibles. It'd be kind of crowded if it was just one, right? <laughs> but I don't know. I, never said, I haven't said that, but think of that. There are places today that are meeting that don't have a Bible. In fact, in a lot of places that used to be in Russia, they would actually take portions and they would trade through the week. In other words, you get to look at a few pages in Luke this week and you get to look at a few pages in Mark and we come back together and we'll... How many Bibles do you have at home? Do you realize how blessed we are? That isn't even a part of a sermon, right? Let's get moving. Let's go back to our Bibles and let's turn to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 15, we truly are blessed to have God's Word, especially in a time where truth seems to be so... We're in a famine for truth, if you will. But here we are. We have God's Word. We have truth. Let's turn to Mark chapter 15, and we continue on. We, were, we left you last week hanging. Jesus Christ is hanging three feet off the ground approximately in a crucified position. We are in the middle of this crucifixion. I left you hanging, Jesus hanging, in the middle of this six hours of crucifixion. We'll begin now in verse 33, Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he calleth Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave, it, gave him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see whether Elijah will come, in, will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. The veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. When the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar, that were looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Lesson of Joseph, and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. May God add a special blessing in reading of his word, and let us just pause for prayer prior to our study. Father God, we're excited to be here. We're excited to know that as we look at the scriptures and we see that our Savior, hanging between heaven and earth, bore the penalties of our sins. It is humbling, it is sombering to think that God took my sin. That the Son of God was the bearer of my sin. But that's what happened. It was your plan, Father. You designed it, salvation through Jesus Christ, even before you spoke into existence the worlds. That's love on display. Grace unfolded. Mercy unmatched. Father, may we see it more intimately, more closely than we've ever seen you before today. We thank you for those that are here. Father, they're here because they want to learn more about you. They want to worship you. They want to praise you. They want to glorify you. May we do that, Father, in a magnanimous way. But these moments now, Father, we'll go to the Word. We'll ask that the Holy Spirit exclusively would teach us. 
would take us intimately to the throne room of grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. This marks the pinnacle. This passage of Scripture is the pinnacle of salvation. There's nothing that's more important. There's nothing that you've crescendoed to. Jesus Christ lived 33 years on earth. These three hours is what it was all about. There's nothing that was more painful. There was nothing of which he was more in the crosshairs of sin. This was the moment, this were the hours that he literally lived his life. This is when Jesus Christ came to earth, God with us, Emmanuel, that God spoke of in Ephesians chapter 1, and it would be through Jesus Christ. It was right now. And the masses missed it. They were too busy. If you were here with us last week, uh, the crucifixion is very matter of fact. Uh, you even find it in today's. I mean, there's a verse there, and it says that this, this portion of Jesus Christ dying, there's no adjectives, literally. They're just, he was crucified. He was scourged. Uh, I, and there's so much color. There's so many things, and obviously negatively. The punishment, the insaneness of human dignity being taken away. But that wasn't what was done with the gospel writers. We spoke most, a lot of time last week. It was the mocking. It was the ridicule. It was all of the things that made him who he wasn't because they did not believe that he was the Son of God. In fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we didn't really go through the book of Mark from start to finish. We've spent a lot of time. We've used it as our source, if you will, as we've walked through the journey, the life of Jesus Christ. But look at the very first verse in the gospel of Mark and what it says. This is what the whole book is literally about. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, comma, the Son of God. Mark chapter 11, 1, 1 and verse 11, it said, There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That was from God Himself. Chapter 3, verse 11. And unclean spirits, remember we talked about the power that Jesus had over demons. And unclean spirits, when they saw Him, fell down before Him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And yet, the first man that said that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. In the book of Mark, we could go back to Matthew in chapter 16, and we could see that Jesus Christ asked of the apostles, Who do men say that I am? And they had all kinds of different answers. But he said, Who do you say I am? And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But that was in Matthew. We started off the very first sentence, the very first sentence of Mark, the, the gospel writer, saying, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God himself says it. I've just shown you where the demons said it. Now, that's something that's interesting. The demons know who he was. And yet, the first human in the book of Mark to say that he was the Son of God, we read today. The Roman centurion the Gentile executioner, the one that sees more pain, more suffering, more death than probably any other person. His job with a team of three or four others is to literally pass out execution on a daily basis. 
He's ready for his job. I don't know about you, that is not a career choice that I would be interested in. Now think of that though, how hardened would you become? I've actually thought about this on a whole different level, but the sense of being around death all of the time. Um, I was to, uh, this is many years ago, this is not in my note, I don't know, it just popped in my mind, but it's interesting how calloused we can become in the face of what we surround ourselves with. Uh, I, w I visited a kill floor, uh, a cattle facility in, uh, um, where was that at? It was in Nebraska. I should know the name of it, but I don't. And they were killing about 3,000 head a day. So you, you would have on the kill floor 3,000, and then you would have a cooler of which there was 3,000 from the day previous, and then 3,000 exits, and it goes into fab floor. That's, it's literally that simple, but it's that, it's, it's, there's a lot going on, okay? But the guy that kills the cattle all day long for probably eight hours, do that for years sometime. Now move it to a new level. We have an executioner that takes human life. He doesn't make those decisions. He's just following orders. Jesus Christ is not his first execution. In fact, there's three on that day. Jesus is no different. In fact, it's been fun to be made, making fun of this one that they claim is the king of the Jews. And he probably was as heavily worded as any of them. <laughs> This is the Jews' king? Well, that's the way kings ought to look. He was probably one of those that would have been engaged in taking that crown of thorns, of which the thorns were said to have been as long as six inches long. And to smash that on his head with a, I was going to say a rod, but a reed or a stick. This one, this man here would have been involved in all of that. And he's the first human in the book of Mark to say after being engaged all of it. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to come back to it. But he was by the cross the entire time. No one else stayed there. Even the women. We'll be talking about that momentarily. He stood there. He saw it all. And when that earthquake and the darkness and the seven sayings of Jesus Christ, he, he, the one that was hardened, the calloused one, the one that's the Roman Gentile, the one that should never have even thought about the Son of God said, this truly was the Son of God. That's how vivid this picture was. That's how illustrating this picture of God was on this day in these three hours. One thing we did not do last week, um, I, don't, I didn't necessarily leave it out. I just didn't think about it. <clears throat> I just alluded to it a moment ago that literally on the cross, from the time that Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth, there's something significant about that as well. Not only did the Old Testament speak of it, but literally Jesus bore your sin. If you're here today and you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, Jesus Christ bore your hell, eternal hell and punishment. He took it for you for those three hours. He took my hell, my sin, he took everything that I owed and he wore it on a cross three foot off of the ground on that day, eternity. And you say, how could that possibly be? An eternal God poured out the cup of wrath on the infinite Son of God. All of that. That was the cup of wrath that Jesus, after leaving the last supper together, 
That is the cup that he wanted to leave alone. Except that was God's only way. It wasn't the crucifixion. It wasn't the scourging. It wasn't even the mocking. It wasn't any of those things that literally Jesus, and he didn't fear it. Make no question about that. Myself, if you would have said in your future within 12 hours you're going to be hanging on a cross and I'm sitting there with my disciples, I'm going to tell you something. There would be some fear going on. I really don't relish the fact of having my wrists nailed to a piece of wood, lifted up, and then nailing my two feet together. And I would stay there until I die. But that was not what Jesus Christ was fearful of. The thing that was so over the top, that was so never been seen before, especially by the Son of God, is the fact that he was wearing all of the sin of those that were saved through his salvation. <laughs> I have no idea. In fact, that's one of the problems we, we get a sense of. How could he wear eternity's hell for each one of those that will be saved for all of, all of eternity? Every lifespan of everyone that's ever trusted Christ, every single one of those, Jesus Christ infinitely wore that hell and damnation and torture in three hours. That's sobering. I can't even say it adequately. But I was there through my sin on that cross with my Savior in three hours of hell. Literally hell came to earth. Last week we asked the question, where was God? <laughs> right? The blasphemy and all of that stuff that was taking place were ridiculing and they're saying, oh, so you're really the Son of God. Why don't you come off the cross? Why don't you show us what you're really made of? Ah, if you were God for that instant, wouldn't you just went, Snuff. Enough of you people. But he didn't do that. He also, it would seem, did not protect his son. I was saying for myself in America today, the thing that just drives me crazy is the fact there's no justice. Justice is absent. We could stand here for the rest of this day and talk about criminals that are in places of leadership that should be brought to justice. Correct? Nothing was more unjust than hanging the Son of God on a cross. And it seems God didn't act. Where was he at? He was right there. We left you last week with Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. We read chapter 53 of Isaiah. Um, I'm, I'll be honest. Did anyone else read 53 again? I didn't. I should have. Because it's so rich. It's so full. But I think we need to read. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. And let's look at verse 10 once again. Because this literally places us right where God was at this moment, at this time. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. I have to start, I'm going to start at verse 5. I should read the whole chapter, but verse 5, chapter 53 of Isaiah. But he was wounded for our transgressions, not for his, for ours. He was bruised for our iniquities, not his, but ours. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we were healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought forth of the lamb to slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had neither he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Now watch, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Where was God? That passage we just read, where was God? He was right there. He, in the darkness, we're going to look at some passages of Scripture. Normally, and, we're, and by the way, is God light? Yes, He is. Let's look at some passages for where He is shown as light. He's the light of the world. But He's also the day of the Lord which is coming. We'll look at that as well. In Joel, in Amos, in Zephaniah, that day of the Lord is coming. And it's judgment. <laughs> and it's the cup of wrath. And remember what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. May this cup, what cup? The cup of wrath. The cup that God had to judge permanently. That cup. Where is God at? He's in the darkness. And those three hours from noon to three, God the Father is there pouring out the cup of wrath on His Son. Ah! <laughs> right? Can't imagine it. But let's take a look and, and let's see that this, it is actually, uh, it's not like God left the room. <laughs> in, in America today, it's like I feel, God, where are you at? Why are you not inter interceding? Why are you not dealing with this stuff? No, when I look at the fact that Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, who came into this world to save this world, these day, this part of this day, if there was ever a time that you say, where is God? It's right here. And actually, God is right in the middle of it, pouring out everything that needed to be done justly on none other than the most innocent one that's ever walked the face of this earth. But let's take a look. Let's go to Psalm chapter 27. You may even have some favorite ones yourself about light, uh, God being light. Uh, Psalm 27, verse 1. A lot of the Psalms speak to very comforting themes. Psalm chapter seven, uh, 27, I'm sorry, in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You could go to Psalm 18. Let's turn back to Psalm 18 for a moment. That's one of my favorites, uh, particularly verses 1 and 2. I, and, and the whole chapter, actually. In fact, I'll just get you started. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. And you find him through the whole chapter of chapter 18 of Psalms of being that of light. Psalm chapter 26, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 60, and chapter 60, I'm sorry. But let's turn, let's take our time and turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, this is written by the Apostle John, the Apostle John. And, and just, we'll just start in. In the beginning was the Word, 1-1. One, one. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the relationship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and God the Father. And the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. Right? <laughs> life comes from light. 
And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Is that not true? Jesus Christ, remember we talked about this on, I think it was the, week, the, the Sunday before Christmas, that literally Jesus Christ, in, even in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory, that shining light, literally, is all about God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about who he was. Continue. That there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but the light, I'm sorry, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Light. Jesus Christ, all of that makes good sense. His presence is light. But there's also a part that we aren't as readily Maybe, maybe we don't access it, maybe we don't recognize it, whatever. But God is also present in darkness. One of the things that just obviously is before he created anything in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, okay? And it says, what's the first thing that God created? Light. So where was God before there was light? God was God. <laughs> he was who he was. He was all the characteristics, everything that he was was still that. Even before as light as we see in this room today, God was God. But let's take a look. In, remember, remember in Genesis chapter 15, let's go there for a moment. Genesis 15, we find that he is making a covenant with Abram. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. We'll look at a couple of them as time allows and we'll move on. But uh, God is making a covenant with Abram. He's, he's giving him a reward, if you will, for his faith. In fact, it says in verse 6, after God had told him these things, it says, Genesis 15, verse 6, he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. But now watch, there's something that God says. I'm sorry, let's continue on. He said unto him, I am the Lord, verse 7, that brought thee out of the Ur of Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. He's speaking to Abram. He said, Lord God, whereby shall I know? How do I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. He took them unto him. All of these divided them in the midst and laid each piece one against another. So they were, you know, it was like an opening between them across from one another. And the birds he divided not. When the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto who's he? God. In this darkness, God is literally speaking to Abram. Know of a surety that thy seed will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them. They shall afflict them 400 years. Where's that? Egypt, right? And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards they shall come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. Now, there's a, he actually uses darkness, which God is in the middle of, to give a representation to Abram of what will happen. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, a very, um, what should we say, a high point in Israel's journey, the Ten Commandments were given to them. Let's, let's take right after that, we'll dive into verse 18. Which chapter is that? Excuse me? Uh, Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Let's dive into verse 18. This is after he's just unfolded the Ten Commandments. All the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpets and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. 
The people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto, watch now, unto the thick darkness where God was. The other thing that's interesting as you think about this, uh, this three hours of darkness, and then Jesus literally, there's a very short time, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll bring it in its context, the very short time after the ninth hour, after the darkness lifted, Jesus said a few things, and then he gave up the ghost. If you think back, the ten plagues in Egypt, I'm not going to ask you to name every one of them, because I can't either, but the last one you all know, right? And that is what? Yeah, the, the death of the firstborn, right? That's where God instituted the Passover. This is the very celebration of which they're all gathered, tens of thousands of people in this. I was going to look at the map, but you know where the map's at. It's back there in Jerusalem. And that's where tens of thousands of people are gathered for this celebration. Because the Passover lamb, the blood of an innocent lamb, would have been put on the doorpost of the home, the house of which you lived, you resided. And the angel of death would pass by. Do you know what the ninth plague was? Three days of darkness. You think there's any significance? I don't know, but it sure adds up nicely. Except three days when you have an eternal God pouring out the eternal cup of wrath on the eternal Son of God, taking all of the eternal damnation and torture and punishment of hell. When you're eternal, you can do that in three hours. Don't ask me to explain that to you. But that's what happened. Now, I did allude to, and then we got off on another subject. Imagine that, me doing that. But um, if Jesus, if from the time that would have nailed him, the patibulum, which would have been nailed, the cross piece, of which, remember that Simon of Cyrene? Uh, that's so interesting, isn't it? You think about the family history that would have been unfolded and written. They didn't know Christ. I, I told, showed you on the map, he would have come from Libya. Tripoli, Libya is where he would have just, he and his family, Jewish family, would have probably came up through the course of a week or two weeks or whatever to come to the Passover. And out of the crowd of these tens of thousands of people, the Romans pick him. Maybe he looked really buff. He looked really stout. He was the man. But it was that day, literally, that God used to call him and ultimately his family into the family of God. It was at that day, whether he was acquainted with Jesus Christ before or not, we don't know, but we know from going into Romans. I went and read those verses for you last week. A man by the name of Rufus, was, which was a son of Simon the Cyrene, which they would have moved their family from the church of Cyrene all the way to the church of Rome, of which Mark would have written to. That's why he said, Simon the Cyrene, whose sons are people you know, Alexander and Rufus, which live in Rome, where I'm writing this to. <gasps> right? Imagine that. But we're there now. We've nailed Jesus to the cross. What does he say in the sense of the time of which he's suspended from earth, weighing or bearing my sin and bearing your sin? The first thing he says, which would be the most ludicrous thing to say to someone that's been going through this torturous escapade of the Son of God being nailed to a cross, he says, what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That would have been the first thing that this Roman centurion, I want you to sort of slip into the Roman centurion's boots. This is the callous, mean dude that does this for a living. But he's watching this Jesus. Now, they've already employed for several hours a mocking and a ridiculing and a scourging and a beating of this man that did not retaliate in any way, not even verbally retaliate. 
And the first thing he says when he's on the cross is, Father, forgive them. Is that what you would say? I don't know that I'd said anything. <laughs> that was his first thing. Now, the Roman centurion heard that, but there's also someone else that heard that. We looked last week, the two thieves, one hanging on each side in relatively very close proximity, obviously, they would have been engaged also hearing all of this mocking. It says in two of the gospel accounts that both of them, not just one, but both of them were reviling Jesus as well. They were mocking him. But in the course of what would have been from 9 o'clock, and the first three sayings, and what you can mark this in your notes, the first three sayings that Jesus said were prior to it becoming dark. So it happened from 9 to 12. The first one, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. That must have shocked this, was the thief on the right or the left, the one that got saved. I don't know what does it say. doesn't matter. There's two thieves. One accepted Christ, one didn't. The one that accepted him would have been very much on the same page as the other. Save us! If you're really the Messiah, if you're really who they say they are, like, like, skin it on. You can take us too. We're here with you. We're your buddies today. They were mocking just as well, honestly. They didn't believe that. But that first thief, the one that turned his life over to Christ within a matter of a few hours, heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know. That's weird. That's weird. All of this enduring of this? And he says, Father, forgive them? The second thing he said from the cross, which would have been before the darkness fell, was to the thief, who had said, Lord, <laughs> remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' second statement was, today you will be with me in paradise. The third thing he said was something we should have gotten into last week because we're actually at the point of darkness where we picked up in verse 33, but I, we didn't get there. Imagine that. The third thing that speaks of Jesus, he's talking about all of those that he sees, don't, God, don't, don't put it on them. Forgive them. And this thief right here, the one that's placed his trust in me right now, that one, save him. And then the one who's actually standing close to the foot of the cross. It's interesting that the women that are gathered there, they start, in fact, what I want you to do, now let's take, let's take our Bibles, and we're going to start in John. I want you to find John chapter 19, verse 25, and I also want you to find Matthew, and I want you to find Mark. We've already got Mark chapter 15, but we're going to just go back and forth between three, these three accounts because it names the women by name, that are there in different, in different ways. And I also want you to see... Oh, I've got to grab my glasses. So let's start in John chapter 19. Now, John's written by whom? Dun, dun, dun. Not too hard, is it? John the Apostle, right? Okay, th th there's, some, there's some meaning in all of that. John the Apostle writes the Gospel of John. So he start, we start with him, John chapter 19. Let me get there for a moment. And then did you find... Let's just do this before we go any further. Then you have Mark in front of you. Then go back to Matthew. And just hold it in your fingers. Matthew chapter 27. Or if you're on your, uh, your iPhone, I'm not sure how you're going to do that exactly, but I'm going to leave that up to you. All right. And then we're going to be looking at verses 55, 56 in Matthew. But let's start in John. John chapter 19 and verse 25. Now, this actually happened before noon, before it got dark. They were talking about, in fact, it, verse 24 is the sense of, of uh, gambling for his, 
or uh, casting dice for his clothing. Okay, that happened. We talked about that last week. Verse 25. Now, they're stood by the cross. Stop. That means they're where? They're right by the cross. Who? His mother. Moms? What would that be like? And his mother's sister. Did you know that? Mary's mother, I'm sorry, Mary's sister is there by the cross with Mary. And there's another one, another Mary. There's three Marys there. Mary, the wife of Cleophas, which actually, now this you're going to have to, this is above my pay grade as well, but we'll see there's another term that could have been used, another word called Alpheus. Alpheus and Cleophas are literally come from the same family name. It could be the same. It kind of inter intertwines, okay? Just keep that in back of your mind. For, and Mary Magdalene, okay? Those women are named by John. Now, before we go any further, let's just continue this thought process. This is the third thing that Jesus says from the cross. Verse 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved. Who's that? John, John the apostle. If you go through the book of John, that's how, he, that's how he describes himself without saying his name. He never says his own name. He's always described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, they are known as, who's his brother? Who's John's brother? James. James the more are, say there's James the less, which we'll find in another passage, the son of Alphaeus, James the less, or the son of James, the son of Alphaeus. James and John were brothers. And now let's think about this. Who did Jesus take with him when they had the inner circle, if you will, or the executive committee? Peter, James, and John, right? James and John, brothers. Peter, how could you not take him? <laughs> he was that outspoken one. So there's one disciple there, and three women were named. Four women, I'm sorry. Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Alphaeus or Cleophas, and then Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene, you might just write, we're not going to go there, but in, in Luke chapter 8, we'll find that Jesus literally cast out seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Now, she's listed as Mary Magdalene. She's a wife of no, she has no husband, she has no children. She came from a little town called Magdalene, which was actually north into Galilee. Now, all of these women stated and named here come not from Jerusalem, even though there were Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalemites? I don't know, whatever. Women from Jerusalem, let's try that. But the ones that are listed and named are the ones that come from Galilee. Well, they would have journeyed with Jesus down to Jerusalem for the Passover. They came from hometown, if you will. Mary Magdalene, what do you know about her? Yes, seven demons cast out, did not have a husband, did not have children. She went from the foot of the cross to being the first one to be at the tomb. The women that followed Jesus and ministered to him, amazing, amazing women. They were forefront. And I have to say this, I'm going to try to do it that way. Can you imagine? How difficult it would have been and the risks you were taking to be at the foot of Jesus' cross when there's literally hundreds that are rebuking, ridiculing, mocking, making fun of this. And here we have five that are named that are there on Jesus' side. One disciple. This, says not, this doesn't say a lot about the disciples, right? Now, one disciple has committed suicide at this point, Judas Iscariot. We have 11 left. How many of the disciples show up at Jesus' cross? 
one. All right. What's Jesus going to do before he goes into taking your sin and my sin? He's going to take care of his mother. Imagine that. In verse 26, Jesus therefore saw his mother and disciples standing by whom he loved. He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. Now, whether that means that he actually literally that hour took her home, or whether it was from that hour he was determined to be her caretaker her caretaker, which seems to be the most appropriate because we'll look in the next passages, we're going to get to in just a moment, that literally they were still there, the group was still there at the end of the darkness period. Now they're not, no, they're no longer by the cross, but let's stop for a moment. Why would John, the disciple that Jesus loved, why would he be taking care of Jesus' mother? We know from other scriptures that Mary had other sons. Now, her husband Joseph, it appears, has been gone. He's been dead for some period of time, actually. Why would Jesus make John her protector? He was a cousin, and he was also a believer. He was a believer. Yeah, that's right. He was a believer. We know from previous encounters, actually we go back there, and we could see that Jesus' brothers, his family... The only one that literally believed in him was his mother. The rest of them thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. In fact, they came. He was taking on the religious leaders one day, and they come outside and he said, would you get a message into him and tell him to knock it off? I mean, like, and they just really thought he was insane. But I have some good news, and let's share this for a moment. Hold your place if you can. You still got enough fingers. Let's go to the next time, and the last time that Mary literally is mentioned is in uh, Acts chapter 1. Let's turn there for a moment. And there's some really exciting news here. If you're looking for the, for the completion of Jesus' other part of the family. Verse 14, chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Now this is just before the Pentecost. And Jesus Christ has just left, honestly. In fact, let's just start in verse 12. We'll bring ourselves together. Then returned they on to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, at Sabbath day's journey. When they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus and Judas the, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Now, I'll have to say, whatever I thought of my brother, Jesus, before he was crucified, even after he was crucified and buried, whatever I thought of him, whether he was insane, whether he took two things, things too far, when he was resurrected, that would be different. That could convince somebody, couldn't it? And it was the resurrection. And in fact, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he appeared to James, his brother. The one that wrote James the book, right? The book in the Bible. That was Jesus' half-brother. Made a difference. In fact, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That one. But before that, at the crucifixion, we have zero family believers. Zero. 
except for Mary, that's right. Now the interesting part is too, do you notice, this is very important actually in, this, in the whole culmination of redemption, is the fact that Mary has no part in salvation whatsoever. Did you notice that? None. It's very clear for a reason. It's all about Jesus. In fact, now this is Stuart. Now the one we say, now if I would have said to my mother, hey woman, it wouldn't have went well. <laughs> wouldn't have went well. Yeah, wouldn't. Yeah, yeah. I think my, if my dad would have been there, I would have been lying flat and there would have been some things taken care of, right? It's, but when Jesus said woman, in fact, this isn't the first time he said this. In fact, I'm not going to take time, but you go all the way back to the wedding at Cana and they didn't have any wine. This is the first miracle that Jesus performed. This was just at the beginning of his ministry. It had been about three years ago, right, from where we're at today. She, she comes to Jesus, and she knows what he could do. In fact, he kept his room perfectly spotless for those. <laughs> he never did anything wrong. That was the one. You know, you got, you got eight kids in front of you. And I remember when, when we had five, sometimes it was challenging to figure out which one it was that we really needed to get to the bottom of. And you'd have to work at it, right? Some of them were better than others. I'm not going to say any names, right? But can you imagine? The one that you knew there was not a problem was Jesus. And of course, you can imagine how that war. Oh, yeah, don't blame Jesus. He doesn't do anything ever wrong. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> Mom loves Jesus, right? She did. She knew. In fact, what, that, what was that priest that uh, he said there would be like a sword piercing her heart? That's what she was encountering right there at the crucifixion. I can't imagine what that must have been for her son. The Son of God. She knew he was the Son of God. What is wrong with the world? And again, I'm just going to say, if you think there's injustice in America today and across the world, it's nothing, nothing, nothing like those guys hanging the Son of God on a cross so that we can be saved. That's the most unjust thing ever done, and yet it's the most act of grace that I can imagine. I'm here standing because I was saved by that gracious act of God not doing what would have been easy to do, and that was to snuff out those that hung his Son up great deal of passion in that. Whew. So Jesus takes care of his mother. Now, oh, what I was going to say was, he addressed her after she said, at the, at the wedding at Cana, he said, woman, there's something that changed in the sense of relationship. Did he ever call her mother before? Of course he did. But when that ministry started, there was a separation of relationship. It was all about Jesus Christ now. But when he said woman, there was a deep sense of respect a deep sense of, I just say, with continuity, if you will. And when he says woman, there's, a, there, there's endearment there. There's affection. There's respect. And he says to John, behold your mother. I'm, I'm, yes, yes. And when he said to, to, to Mary, behold your son. From that day forward, John treated her just like his mother who interesting there was there as well. John's mother was there at the cross as well, which I think is the reason that John was there. Maybe there was a sense of protecting his aunt and his mother. Who am I speaking of? Yeah, let's go look at the other passages now. And let's watch what's happening. Uh, we've named again Mary, Jesus' mother. We've named Mary's sister. We've named Mary the wife of Cleophas, or it could be Alphaeus, we'll see that in a moment, and Mary Magdalene. So let's go back to, let's, we, can, we can do it anyway. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 55 and 56. 
Now, I want you to watch, though, what's happened. This is written, these verses, this is what I have to be careful to say. Let's keep our context. I didn't do the good job of that. Matt, or John chapter 19, verses 25 and on. When was that written? Or what's the context of the time frame? Before noon, before the darkness. This is the third saying of Jesus Christ. John, behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. This is done before noon, before it's dark. Where were they at? They were at the foot of the cross. Now, these verses that we're going to read now are after the darkness. Okay? Here we go. Matthew 27, verses 55 and 56. In fact, if you want to check that, if you go back to verse 45, you'll find that the sixth hour is darkness over until the ninth hour. This is after the fact. Verse 55 says, Many women were there, were there beholding afar. What? Did you see that? They're afar off. What would you do if the whole place was dark, and I'm talking dark for three hours? I would be confused. Sun or no sun, right? What is going on? In fact, I'm not even sure, what would you do? You just sort of move, I guess, and it says they were beholding from afar off. This is after it, began, it got light again. Which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Same things. Among them was Mary Magdalene. We saw her in John. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. Okay? Mark that in your minds. Now let's go back to Mark. Mark chapter 15. We've already read this, but let's watch. Same ladies. Verse 40. This again, after the fact. We read in verse 33, the sixth hour till the ninth hour was dark. This is after the fact. Verse 40. There were also women looking on afar off. Same statement as Matthew. Among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph. That's who? James of Alphaeus. Remember, we, we actually read that disciple's name. And Salome. Who's Salome? She's the mother of James and John. Her husband is Zebedee. Isn't this interesting? It all starts to tie together. Do you remember the woman that came with her two sons before Jesus, just about before they had the Last Supper? And she was concerned about their being sitting at the right hand and the left hand. How obvious if they're cousins. <laughs> That's his aunt. Jesus' aunt. Salome, which would have come to Jesus. How could he refuse me? <laughs> what do you think Salome's thinking right now as she's standing afar after for three hours of darkness? Confused. Conflicted. What's going on? What happened? So there's John, his mother Salome, his aunt Mary. Still, what courage did that take? Would have you been there? If you were one of the other ten disciples, you weren't. <laughs> you'd given up, you'd ran away. And you know, we, we can follow this through in Mark 16, some of those same women were the ones that got ready to see Jesus on a Sunday morning. They were the last to see him dead. They were the first to see him Sunday morning. Now that is ministering, isn't it? There's only two in the, Mar in the book of Mark, there's only two that are said to minister, to serve Jesus Christ. One of them we've read in Mark chapter 15, 
That's the women that followed him from Galilee. Do you know who the other one is? You find it in chapter 1 of Mark. After Jesus came out of the wilderness and was tempted, he was ministered unto by the angels. Think of that. The women were actually acting in the same capacity as the angels for that Galilean ministry. They followed him from there to Jerusalem. They're there, the last ones at the foot of the cross. I'm going to tell you something, ladies. God has gifted women with a steadfastness and a love for their Savior that exceeded the disciples. I'm convinced the only reason that John the Apostle is there is because he's there to protect his Aunt Mary and his mom, Salome, right? He's probably got one in each hand, right? And then Jesus is third saying before it gets dark, before he's wearing the sin, we're going to get in that just a moment. He makes sure that his mother is taken care of. Now that's a savior. That's love. That's the part that Satan could have no idea of understanding. He was convinced, Satan I'm sure was convinced that, you know what, if you put enough pressure, if you put enough punishment, if you put enough ridicule, if you put enough rebuke, if you put enough stuff, it's kind of the same thing he did with Job. You read out of the book of Job today, didn't you? Chapter 1. That's what Satan was counting on from Job. You make his life tough enough, you'll spit in your face, God. You think Jesus is going to get himself hung on a cross after taking all that kind of a beating? Yes, because Satan does not understand God's love. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Aren't you glad? Let's go to the meat of it. Let's go back to Mark. Let's go back to Mark. Let's look at the cup of wrath. Verse 33, when the sixth hour was come, that's noon. Uh, by the way, that's usually the lightest part of the day. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, those of you that are keeping track of the statements that Jesus said when he was suspended between heaven and earth, we've said three so far. Let's rehearse them. Number one was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Number two, today you will be with me in paradise. Number three, Yep. Hey, woman, here's your, here's your son, right? Son, here's your, here's your, here's your woman. That's wrong. Here's, here's your mother. See, it was interesting how he said that, wasn't it? See, woman was a deep level of respect. But let's make, don't miss this. This is really important. Mary has nothing to do with salvation. I'm going to say that one more time. Mary has nothing to do with salvation. Mary bore the Son of God, which is salvation. End of redemption for Mary. Did Jesus love his mother? Absolutely. But Mary had to get saved just like you do. I said that loudly, clearly. Mary is not a saint. No, no. In fact, at the end of these three hours, there's not even a reason to have a temple as they were having it. There's no reason to have sacrifices. There's no reason to have a priest. Because Jesus Christ is once and for all our high priest. Because he paid the bill. He paid the price eternally, perpetually. Ah, great stuff. Three hours at start. Now, how many things did Jesus say for those three hours? He was on the cross from 9 o'clock till just shortly after 3 o'clock. So he said three things before noon. We just looked at those. You've rehearsed them for me. Then we're on the cross for three hours, and it's dark. Totally, completely. This is not eclipse. 
This is not stars lining up. This is God's miraculous serving the cup of wrath in pure darkness. See, I didn't take you to Joel yet, did I? I didn't do any of that. What a work. What a deal. Yeah. Right? <laughs> How much did he say when he was on the cross in the darkness? Three hours. Not one word. Not one word was said. I want us to see. I don't think we did this. Let's do it really quickly. Oh, we're okay. It's right, it's right there. Let's find the day of the Lord. If you can, let's go to Joel. Joel chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to be looking at some of the minor prophets. It's around 1307 in my Bible. I don't know where it is in yours, but verse 15, chapter 1, says this. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as does destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Then down to verse, fifth, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 10. Joel, chapter 2, verse 10. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. That's the day of the Lord. Does this sound like something we're reading? Yeah. There's a couple of things, and especially we're not going to go there right now, but in Revelation, there's a couple of things that come together. You will see earthquakes, massive earthquakes. It's amazing. That it, have you guys been following any of that? Just the, the sense of the, in, the increase in, uh, what's the right word, frequency of earthquakes on our world today? Hey, there's something really weird. I talked to a guy this morning. It has nothing to do with anything, but if you can figure this out, there's something going on. If you were, if, how many of you hunt horns? Elk or deer horns, anybody? Yeah, okay. If you are hunting deer or elk horns in Titonia or Driggs, Idaho, you might take your pistol with birdshot with you because the rattlesnakes are out right now. They're sunning themselves on the top of the sagebrush. Friends, that's weird. That's really weird. And I'm not talking one or two. These guys are packing a pistol. This is crazy. What's going on? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I have no idea. I mean, it just left me mystified. Like, when I, why somebody would call me at 10 to 6 on a Sunday morning to tell me that, I don't know, but he did. <laughs> but he did. Is it weird? Maybe Is it, it maybe it's just for today. Maybe I just want to, but that's really strange. I'm going to be honest. This is the middle of January. That's, that's four to five months early. This makes no sense at all. What's going on? And I, I, don't, I don't have an answer. I'm just saying that, my friends, is weird. There's a whole lot of things going on in our world today that are not happening before at an alarming rate. Uh, frequency of earthquakes, for one. And we'll find that every time you see the day of the Lord or you see judgment, day of the Lord means judgment, there's a couple of things that happen. You will see darkness with it, and you will also see earthquakes. The book of Revelation is very profound about that. The frequency of earthquakes actually in the last number of years is continuing to, to increase pretty dramatically, honestly. It's, something's coming because God said it would, right? Don't you, aren't you glad you have the truth? It's crazy. Okay, let's, let's keep going. So let's go, you're in Joel, you're in Joel. Uh, verse 11, which I didn't read, I don't think. Um, verse 11, the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. Oh, let me read 10 and 11 together again, because I want you to see this, that God is present in darkness. The earth, verse 10, shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and moon shall be dark. And the, shun, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. That's dark, people. And watch verse 11. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. Same point, same time. For his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? Chapter 2, verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. 
Then turn to the next book. Just keep going. Go to the little book of Amos. Amos chapter 5. Okay, just to the right. Find Amos chapter 5, verse 20. Watch this. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it. Hmm. Chapter 8, verse 9. Same book. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Those are all pictures of the day of the Lord. That's the day when Jesus Christ, from noon to three, was bearing your sin, was bearing my sin. It was the day of the Lord in the sense of dumping out the cup of wrath, the punishment that had to be meted out for the cause of sin in darkness. Who was there in the darkness? Where was God? He was alive and well, right there, pouring out the cup of wrath on his very own son. I don't even know what to say to you. But here is the deal. The final deal, we're not done, but the final thing is this, that Jesus Christ wore your hell. He bore your hell if you're saved. If you do not know Jesus Christ personally, hell is in front of you. Unless with the last breath of your life and before would trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then that hell that he bore for these three hours, your hell disappears into eternity and you become one of his. There are only those two choices. You let Jesus Christ bear your hell or you will wear it. Now, again, I've said it once, I don't, I, can't, I, I don't understand it. How can God bear out, meet out all of that punishment, all of that eternal, for three, I, other than you have eternity at every level. Infinite, infinity is every level of this. Can God do that? Yes, he can, and he did. Now, the part that we struggle with, because there's a part, in my, a lot of my previous life, I felt that God turned his back on sin. But what does that mean then? In other words, this darkness. What would that mean? That would basically put Satan in charge then, right? He's not in charge. He's not in charge at all. He's not in charge of sin. He uses sin to destroy mankind. That's what he does. He is not in charge. And he will suffer as no one will suffer in hell because it was designed for he and his angels. This, these fictitious little cartoons of where Satan is running hell is a joke. It's a bad joke. Satan will be cursed beyond measure. God is fully there in the darkness of those moments because in God's darkness, and he's there, it is full-scale judgment. That's all through the scriptures. That's what I wanted to paint that picture of. But then why does Jesus say what comes next? Let's keep going. Let's go to Mark. You're in Mark. No, you're not. You're in, you're in Amos. But let's go to, there's one where you might jot down your notes as far as that. That's Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14. I'm not going to go there, but you can write it down. Uh, darkness symbolizes divine judgment. There's no question about it. But let's go back to Mark. Let's keep reading it. When the sixth hour was come, noon, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth, very matter-of-factly, for three hours is complete darkness. Nothing was said. It's just complete darkness. And at the ninth hour, in other words, this is just after the darkness has been completed, Jesus, in a loud voice, stop. Why is that significant? 
That's correct. If he's about ready to die, which he is, he's right on the edge now. He's moments away from literally giving up his spirit. If you are that close in crucifixion, because of the fact of how your lungs would work, you would not be crying in a loud voice. And Jesus, with a loud voice, declares in Aramaic the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, when you read that, you think for a moment that God is gone. Correct? That's the fourth thing that he states from the cross. This is after. So we have 9 to 12, three things are said. 12 to 3, nothing said. Just after the darkness begins to be lifted, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The timing of that is what makes it work for me. I have looked at that verse numerous times. I've been taught to me. And that is the fact that those three hours of darkness was a time when God turned his back on his son because he was wearing sin. No. No, it's not. That's not what the picture points of God dealing with sin. He poured out the cup of wrath himself. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, it pleased him to bruise his son. He poured out the cup of wrath, God the Father, intentionally for those three hours. Why did Jesus say, my God, my God? Now, every other time that you'll see that Jesus Christ addressed God the Father, every single time he addressed him as Father. How did he address him this time? My God, my God. Now, that thing, my, what if he would have just said, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he said, my God, my God, two times. If you, go, we're gonna, if you want, we could track through the scriptures, but let's just do it. I'll just help you, and I'll give you the verses later if you need to. The times that there's actually a name said twice, let's think of them. God said to Abraham, Abraham. He said to Moses, Moses, Moses. Jesus said to Martha, Martha, Martha. You know what every single time went when they doubled the name? There's a sense of divine affection. I love you. I love you. Now, why would Jesus say, why, why have you forsaken me? What does hell look like? I just told you that hell has come to earth for those three hours. You know what makes hell continue? There's no relief. There's no relief. There's no comfort. Jesus has just bore your sin. He has borne my sin. Make a person. I'm going to make it as personal as I can. I, I, it just it actually breaks my heart to think of what Jesus Christ did for me in those three hours. That I don't have to go through it. Ah, amen and amen, hallelujah. But after that cup was finished and the darkness lifted. Wouldn't that be the first thing you would say? Father, where are you? I need you now. The timing is everything. Was God there in those three hours? Yes, he was pouring out the cup of wrath, and that's why Jesus Christ said, if this cup could pass from me, but your will be done. That's the part he was, whatever you want to call it, Jesus was not afraid, but that's the part that was the most, that was the pinnacle of, of, of punishment. And after it was fulfilled, he's still living. That, to me, is significant as well. It did not kill him. He's still God. He's still the Son of God, and he's still living, and he's still giving himself freely. In fact, John chapter 10, verse 18, I lay down my own life. No one martyred him. No one took his life. He gave it up. 
But the first thing after fulfilling that, what would be the relationship that Jesus Christ had had for the entire part of his life, except for those three hours, was what? To be in communion with his Father. And he wouldn't have wanted one second to go by after that darkness lifted. My God, my God, where are you? And you know where God was? Just like that, he was right there. Because there's two other things that were said. So let's review. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That was number one. Number two was? Today you will be with me in paradise. That thief, right? Number three? Woman, your son. Number four? My God, my God. And then there's something, there's three short things that are said. Very, these are all closely together. So let's go, just take a look. I can find my glasses to look. Let's go to John. Let's go back to John for a moment. John chapter 19, verse 28. We find the next thing that's said. He said, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, he's fulfilled it. That the scripture might be fulfilled, and you actually find this in Psalm chapter 69, verse 21. He said, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled it a sponge with vinegar and put it up upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. They put it on a stick. Okay? He said, I thirst. Now that's actually in Psalm. He had to say that because that's what the Old Testament scripture said he would say. I thirst. They put up, and they would have had just, you know, they just said it as a jar of of vinegar, if you will, kind of a sour mix, and they would have put it on a hyssop branch, on a sponge, and they would have lifted it up because they couldn't have reached him, okay? And it seems like he partook of some of that. And immediately after that, let's stay in John, he says the sixth thing in verse 30. I left. You just stay right where you're at. I'll be right there with you in a moment. Chapter 19 and verse 30. It says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, my favorite words in the Bible, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. But there's one thing we find in Luke that was part of that saying. Let's go back to Luke chapter 23, the seventh thing that he said. Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Verse 46. When Jesus had cried with a loud voice, in Luke 23, 46, when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, oh, stop, did you see it? (laughs) My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that first seconds of the fact that he had paid the price, the cup of wrath was poured out, and he has said, where are you? Literally within minutes, he says, Father, what does he say? I hear some mumbling. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. That's the most awesome three hours. Which one did he say first? Which one? Finished? It is finished into your into your hands I commend my spirit. All together, all basically all together. Yeah. It is finished into your hands, Father. I commend my spirit. Man, isn't that good stuff? It actually clears up a lot of things for me, theologically. God is the one that deals with sin. He does not take a back stance to it. He deals with it up front, with justice, with absolute, complete fury of divine wrath. Because it's everything against what he's designed. Satan is not in charge of it. When Jesus Christ, when he said it is finished, that was literally the end of the power of sin that Satan had been wielding for, on a chain for how long? He did it in the garden, Garden of, garden of Eden. He whips, he whips out sin. And 
unfortunately, Adam and Eve both bit. They bit. There was a pun intended. It was too simple. <laughs> but think of that. Here we are. Finally, the penalty has been broken. No longer. And if you're here without Jesus Christ, you have a really, really important decision to make. You either let Jesus Christ in those three hours wear your eternal damnation, which you're deserving of, which I was deserving of, which everyone that's trusted Christ is deserving of, or you'll have to deal with it yourself. What more could God do? What more could Jesus Christ have done? Any rational thinking individual would have said, enough of this already. Away with you. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now let's go back. I told you you were going to be slipping into somebody's boots. You remember that? Who was that guy? The centurion. It's been quite a while ago, but I told you to slip in the centurion's boots. I have rehearsed, or we've rehearsed together, the seven sayings that Jesus said from the cross. You will find that the Roman centurion did not move afar off as the women did, as John the disciple did, and probably everyone else did. His job is to remain at the execution site. He has heard everything that Jesus has said. He has seen the three hours of complete darkness. He's watched the furious wrath unfolded on this man that is wearing the sign, Jesus, the King of the Jews, written in three languages. And he has seen enough. But there's some other things that have happened as well. One he wouldn't have known about. And we've spoken in a number of times. I'm not going to spend much time here today. At 3 o'clock, just when Jesus said it was finished, when the price was paid, the veil was torn in the temple. All of those tens of thousands of lambs that were going to be sacrificed on that afternoon, which would have be begun to be done at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, that's when the Passover lamb was killed. The, de- the moment, the hour that Jesus, I should say, the hour that Jesus Christ died, tens of thousands of lambs would be slaughtered to celebrate the Passover. It all became completely pointless. And the thing that must have rocked their world was the place no one could go into except one time a year for a very brief moment was to take blood from an innocent and put it on the mercy seat and then get out of there. That place was open for the entire world to see. The road to God had become very wide and it came through one person, Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. It speaks of this in a more grandiose way. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll pick it up, I believe, in verse 12. Hebrews chapter 10. And there's a lot more to be said, but let's just read this passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And their sins and iniquities will remember no more. Praise God. There's not one sin that Jesus Christ did not pay for of yours if you've accepted him as Christ, as Savior. Now, 
verse 18, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Isn't that the truth? Which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's a relationship that had never happened before. And on that day, I don't know what they did. Did they try to put that baby back together? I don't know. Did they try to sew it back up? Did they, what would be the reason, right? Talk about blow their minds. What did the high priest do with that on Passover, the high Sabbath day? Jesus took care of it all. Talk about change stuff. Something else happened. What did we say when we talked about the day of the Lord? There's something that you see it through Revelation. You see it through Joel. You see it through all of those consequences of the day of the Lord. What is it? Something else happens. We spoke of it beforehand. Earthquakes. Severe earthquakes. There was a severe earthquake on this day. Big time earthquake. Now, this would have been something that the Roman centurion would have been part of. He wouldn't have known about the temple, the veil in the temple. But this is all happening sequentially. There's the right word, getting out. But let's take a look. Um, I'm not sure we're going to find it the best, but in Mark, I don't think we will find it. No. So let's go back to Matthew, probably. Let's try Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Hoping I'm right. Yeah, and let's, okay, so let's pick it up. Verse 50. Mm-hmm. Jesus, verse 50, this is Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. We're starting to wind down. Chapter, 50, chapter 27, verse 50. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, again, loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent or broke or split. Whoa! That Roman centurion seen a lot of stuff on this day, hadn't he? Started with three guys. He's seen a lot of stuff. He's seen it dark as coal from noon to three. He's listened to seven things that this guy has said from the cross. There's an earthquake that is, man, it's a mother of earthquakes. Now, there's something else that happened, but it, ha- it seems like from the way it's said that it's, its fruition was after the fact. It said that in verse 52, same chapter, chapter 27, the graves were opened as a result of this earthquake, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Now, did you notice it wasn't just anybody? It were those that were saints, the ones that were godly, that were righteous. Those arose. They were dead. They arose. They came out of the graves. Now, watch. I have this underlined in my Bible because I think it's significant. Came out of the graves after his resurrection. And went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, if you talk about get your mind blowed, uh, this would have been probably on Sunday. It, whether, whether they, it, it seems as such that the earthquake would have caused these graves to open, but literally were not risen. How could they? Because the first fruits of resurrection, according to the scripture, is Jesus Christ. But after that fact, there are literally, it seems like, many Christians that roll into Jerusalem. Tom. I thought you were dead. Well, praise God, I no longer am. Now, there's two thought processes. Now, I, I'll tell you which one I'm of. But in other words, let's say there was 1,000. I don't know if there was 2,000 or 3,000 or who knows. I don't know. But it says many that were saints that arose and after the resurrection went into town. Now, there are those that believe that they actually would have died again. 
I don't think so. I don't think so. Because the key component is that now if that would have been, if they would have entered in before Jesus' resurrection, then that could be a possibility. But after his resurrection, they would have been in a resurrected body state because of what happened to him. Therefore, it's like a first fruits showing, if you will. This is a show and tell. In fact, I'm pretty sure that after whenever Jesus would have ascended, I'm sorry, not when he ascended, but whenever they were finished with what it was to prove the fact that Jesus Christ died for all of this. Yes, I'm Tom. I'm the guy that died three years ago. I'm the guy that literally was in the grave. You've come to my gravestone. You see me. Because of what Jesus Christ has paid for, what he has been raised from unto a new resurrected body, Ta-da! That would blow some minds. So would it have gone back to Moses and Abraham and all those? The days of the it seems like it was just the graveyard, the cemetery that was in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Okay? It seems like it would contemporary to the time frame. Yeah, that, G, that, uh, that, he, that Jesus appeared to. Yeah, in fact, let's, that, let's take a look at that because that's another refutable evidence. People that says that Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, why don't you convince these 500 people that Paul said were still living? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Ernie brings us to a good point. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's take a look. And let's go to verse... Three. This is, the, this is the gospel wrapped up in as succinctly message as I can even think of. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered, this is Paul speaking, for I delivered unto you, the Corinthians, first of all, that which I also received. I also received it. I, Paul. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He did exactly what was said, and that he was buried. That he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. That's it. That's the gospel. And watch, verse 5. He was seen of Cephas. That's Peter. Then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of the whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. That's strong. As he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, of those 500, a good share of them are still living. Go talk to them. They saw him. Isn't that, that's really stout evidence. You talk about a day. Is this not a day? This Friday in April of probably AD 30, this is a day. This is the day that changed you. This is the day that there's a reason for you to be here. If that day had not happened on that Friday at that 3 o'clock when Jesus did not say it is finished, he did not give up his ghost to the Father, he did not literally do any of that, I for one would not be here. What's the point? Truly then, what would be the point? But he did. He was seen of those 500. Those resurrected saints that would have walked out of that cemetery and came in on a Sunday afternoon... I don't know what that looks like. But the cemetery out at Sheridan, south of town, all of a sudden in Sheridan, three days after Jesus died and is resurrected, there's like 300 Christians that died. Like, what? <laughs> but you know what? The crowd was still unscathed. It said they were beating their breasts in several of the gospel accounts. And we're, I know I've got to get moving. I've got to close. I've got to get done. Okay? But isn't it amazing? The ones that were supposedly closest to God were the most resistant. That's what religion does. Religion actually keeps people from God. There's walls that go up. There's calluses that 
are formed. The more they get used to using God for their purposes, the less relationally they are attached. It says that the crowds went away. Now, again, I don't, I don't know about you. The Roman centurion's as hard as any man, but he could deal with facts. Reality hit him square in the face. He's the first one in the book of Mark that said that is the Son of God. The crowds went away and they were beating their breasts. It was like there was guilt, there was some sense of anguish, but no more. I don't have time today, but in Acts chapter 2, where the, 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 uh, at Pentecost, there was again, a bunch of people were gathered together for a feast, a gathering of Jews. That was the time in which Jesus had begun the church. It's interesting as Peter gives this rather short message. Let's just go there. It'll just take just a minute, just a minute. You're laughing. <laughs> Acts chapter 2. We'll do it quickly. And I'm just going to go to the end of his sermon. It's not very long, but I think these people that went away that really didn't put it all together yet. It's like it took time. Isn't it amazing? Think of maybe a mother, a father, a brother, a sister that you've prayed for for years to come to Christ. They haven't heard it in their language yet. Here's Peter giving this sermon at Pentecost, chapter 2. I'll get there in a moment. And I'm going to go to the, kind of to the end of it. Verse 32, Acts chapter 2. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let, watch now, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now Christ to them is Messiah. And now watch, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Where do you think that started? That started at Jesus' death when he said it's finished. And they went away, beating their breasts, full of guilt, full of anguish, full of trouble. And when, Jesus, uh, when Peter shared this 40 days later, the gospel was in their language. That's one of the things I pray for. I, you know, there's, there's people that are 80 and 90 years old. that you, They've heard the gospel who knows how many times. They maybe just haven't heard it in their language. And I'm not talking Russian or French or that. I'm talking about hearing it so it hits the heart, the heart language. That's what America needs. We need the gospel in people's heart language. Because that's what has to happen. I was thinking that, you know, when you say a word twice, uh, Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Martha, Martha. There's that song that was written. I, don't, I didn't do enough research, but it just hit me. I was walking in the church today. America, America, God has shed his grace on thee. What more could America want it? God has shed his grace upon this great land that he made great. And now what we need is we need men, women, and children to hear the gospel in their heart language. We need to pray that way. <laughs> I want Jesus Christ to be the one that bears their hell, just like he bore mine. Just like he took every last sin that I'll ever commit. In three hours, he wore it all. And what would drive me to hell, he wore all of that hellish nature on himself so I could go free. I have to close with one verse because this is what we've been talking all day long and we could have done it in one verse and you say, why didn't we do that? <laughs> <laughs> I 
Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I'm hoping now by capping with this, this literally makes this verse come alive for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 22, 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he, God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, Jesus Christ. That is literally what we've just spoken about for what seems a very long time to you. But God had planned it for eternity. That that's the way he's going to do it. When Satan thought he'd won, when he thought that there was no way that anyone could have possibly took that much punishment that could not have finally bailed out and said, enough already, I want to squash them all, Jesus still kept hanging between heaven and earth and said, let's review the seven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But the thief must have heard that and said, that's amazing. And Jesus responded when he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, number two, today you will be with me in paradise. Then thinking about those that he was closest to, his mother, he said, woman, behold your son. To John, the one that he loved, who was his cousin, think of that, John and James, watching that unfold. And then three hours of complete darkness. The darkness was lifted. The weight of the cup of wrath was finally over. Jesus' first words after that, just seconds, literally after that cup had been fulfilled, said, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you at? I need you in comfort. See, that's the difference between heaven and hell. That's the difference between a relationship with Jesus Christ and not, is the fact that there's trials, there's difficulties, but you know what? God is there with you. He's there to comfort. He's there to relieve you. And we know that that didn't last very long because instantaneously as such, the next saying that Jesus said was, I thirst. They reached up with a hyssop branch and gave him a, whatever that is, a sip, a taste, or whatever, of vinegar, to which he responded, it is finished, Father. Remember, every other time he always said Father, and this time he said Father again. Just think of that, it's, it's, it's the same. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and it was done. If there's not a reason for a hallelujah, this is the greatest, greatest day of all humans history. This changed everything. To God be glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray. Father, there are words literally that I don't have a capacity to understand or know, but I've done the best that you've given because we've asked the Spirit to be here today. We've asked the Spirit to take it where it needs to go. There may be someone listening today, Father, that doesn't know Jesus Christ personally. But maybe today they've heard the gospel in their heart language. They've seen firsthand what Jesus Christ went through for them. Sin is devilish. Sin is death. Sin has wages. But Father Jesus paid them. And in these quiet moments, that person has the opportunity to literally bow their knee bow their hearts in humility and saying, Lord God, I don't have a Savior, but I need one. 
I need Jesus. He and he alone is the only one that has, has taken my sin. No one else has offered. I'm not able. I know the only thing I have in front of me is death. But I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. I accept him as the one and only that I will trust with my sin. He paid it. I owed it. To him I trust. Anyone that's said that prayer, his, relationship, his or her relationship has changed. They've become a child of God. Jesus has died for them. The weight of sin is no longer there. The penalty of sin has been broken. It's a glorious day. That was the day that Jesus Christ literally died for. That was the day that God the Father poured out the cup of wrath of which Jesus Christ knew the brunt of it would be unbelievable in the sense of punishment and wrath. But that was the moment that he took. Those were the three hours that he unfolded on the sun. Father, our level of thanksgiving is minuscule, and it's what it should be. We don't even understand fully. One day we will, when we see you in your full infinity. But nonetheless, we thank you for the word of God. The clear description of what Jesus accomplished. To have truth in a land that is full of famine. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray, Father, that the gospel is heard in heart languages. We have strayed from you far. We kill unborn. We kill those that are weak. We've lost our way. But, Father, you are completely, fully, completely, 100% in control. You have let time go by for those that haven't come to you yet. That, my, that, Father, is what I pray for. And men and women and children would open their hearts to Jesus Christ, the one, the only, the only one they could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except through me. Father, amazing grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. In Jesus' name.